Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Primary Care Podcast. It's your boy, Dr. Mark List. Before we end today's episode um, of a pretty interesting topic I want to talk about, we are going to switch things up. Instead of a joke, um, I am going to use 2021 to better educate you, uh, fun facts uh, about different topics. And I think for January and maybe for February, too, we're going to start with animal scientific facts. Um, again, I think it's important to be primary care physicians, to be, to be scientists, to be well-rounded in our knowledge. So the first animal fact that I have for you today comes to us in a bird piece of knowledge, uh, bird trivia. So a raven has 17 primary wing feathers, and the big ones are all at the end of the wing, and they're called pinion feathers, P-I-N-I-O-N, pinion feathers. Uh, so this is something you know now. Um, unlike the raven who has 17, a crow has 16 feathers. So the difference really between a crow and a raven is only a matter of opinion. All right, let's start the primary care podcast is written and by a family physician for an audience of other physicians, nurse practitioners, physicians, assistants, residents, and medical students interested in primary care topics. This is not a podcast for patients and should not be used as medical advice. This is also a personal podcast produced on my own time and solely reflecting my personal opinions. Statements of this podcast do not reflect the views or policies of my employer, past or present, or any other organization with which I may be affiliated. Thank you for listening to the primary care podcast. I'm Dr. Mark List, here to bring you the latest news, guidelines, and updates from primary care sources around the globe. Keeping it under 15 minutes long because you're in a hurry and I'm not that smart. Well, welcome back, pod girls, pod boys, pod people, to the Primary Care Podcast, your favorite, I'm sure, favorite uh, primary care podcast on the internet. Uh, while we were in the break there, you uh, we, you heard our disclaimer playing there. Um, Bob let me know that he is, in fact, an ornithologist, um, and he said that that was an accurate fact and was not at all a pun uh, to um, entertain the, the podcast listeners. So he wanted to clarify that, um, that piece of information. So today's episode, uh, we're going to do something we don't normally do, but I think it's, it's a pretty hot and controversial topic. So I wanted to talk about it because it comes up certainly in my primary care clinic. In fact, it's come up about five or six times. Um, I, I've kind of lost exact track now but multiple, multiple times where patients want to know my opinion on ivermectin. And some of these have been patients who uh, want to take ivermectin prophylactically. Some of them want to take it when they do have COVID. And some of them just want my opinion on it. Um, and for those of you not in the loop, um, a couple of weeks ago on conservative United States media, for those of you who are national listeners, um, it, it, there, it became a, a, a hot topic, basically, uh, about ivermectin. Uh, Fox News, one of the conservative um, uh, news uh, outlets, as many of you guys know, even international listeners know, um, uh, had a critical care doctor on who was in front of Congress, begging Congress for um, more trials and more research on using old drugs like ivermectin as in, in his words, was a miracle drug um, and, and was basically, um, if we gave it to every person in the United States, would uh, end the pandemic. And some of the numbers and some of the studies that he quoted, uh, he, he linked to in an article, um, or he wrote an article. Um, it was not uh, primary research. It was just a, a, con a conglomeration of, of, of studies. And some of the studies are, are frankly, un un unbelievable, um, just incredibly, insanely good. Um, we're talking, you know, prevention uh, for prophylaxis, primary prevention of COVID in like the 
90 plus percentages um, in a couple of different studies, some more in like the 80% uh, risk reduction. And uh, so this was a, I wanted to bring up this topic because it's been asked multiple, multiple times. And here in the United States, uh, we, uh, it is not FDA approved uh, for that. It has really been pushed back about not uh, prescribing it uh, from all of our governing bodies at this point. And so Dr. Paul Sachs uh, wrote a blog post, and we don't normally uh, talk about blog articles or or reference that. We normally hit primary uh, articles, but I think this is a really good takedown. Uh, for those who don't know, Paul Sachs is an uh, infectious disease doctor. He writes for New England Journal of Medicine. He has a blog um, on for Journal Watch. He's one of the contributors there. Um, a very evidence-based infectious disease doc. It talks about how, yes, ivermectin is controversial. And so you know, he brings up the fact that we were burned by hydroxychloroquine. Here on this podcast, we talked about the early evidence for hydroxychloroquine was weak but positive, and we were using it because it was really all that there was. And as Paul mentions, uh, Dr. Sachs mentions, mentions in his podcast, or sorry, in his um, blog, I'm sure he has a podcast too, everyone has a podcast, um, he talks about how the fact that we kind of in the United States and some of the Western countries are really been burned by hydroxychloroquine, how we repurposed this drug, we thought it would be something. And then when the, uh, you know, when this was based on uh, early, uh, you know, trials, flawed observational studies, um, and when we we tried to, you know, follow these through with larger, more well-quality, high-quality studies, the data just didn't pan out. And so maybe there was a very small impact, but it wasn't probably enough to really warrant further research or further treatment with it. And, and we talked about even, even gosh, back in one of my earliest podcasts about COVID, we talked about how there was data and some of it was very positive. Some of it was not positive at all. And so even early on, there was mixed data. And as we went farther and farther on, the data was even more mixed. And when you have mixed data and the better and better quality studies show there's no effect, it's pretty clear if there is an effect, again, the needle's going to point very, very, you know, very, very small, uh, either in one direction or the other. And it was very clear with hydroxychloroquine that it really was never going to do that much, um, even if it did have a positive impact. Now, with ivermectin, unlike hydroxychloroquine, right, ivermectin is not being used at all in the United States and a lot of Western countries. But it is really used, I shouldn't say Western countries, in, you know, um, in some of our you know, uh, United States, United Kingdom, uh, a lot of our English-speaking countries. And he talks about this blog, how he had an informal poll of his infectious disease docs uh, on Twitter, and there's about 2,500 2, votes on, on from infectious disease doctors or in that realm, but if you're using it or not, only 5% were using. And it is widespread. Uh, its use is widespread in Latin America. And in um, S South American and Central American clinicians are strongly advocating it because they're showing good results. It also in Bangladesh, uh, high high use as well. And some of those studies that have come out have been from Bangladesh. And um, it, it's really, again, really a lot more commonly used there. Why? Because, you know, they're very comfortable prescribing it for other uses, right? It's anti-parasitic effects. And it's really hard because early on, I had read a study back in the middle of the year um, you know, in the summertime about ivermectin and had, you know, this really incredibly promising trial and it looked really, really good. But all of the infectious disease docs and even like virologists talked about how it's really unimpressively, unimpressive from a pharmacokinetic standpoint. 
right? It doesn't, I mean, you really, it doesn't have nearly as much effectiveness as some of our monoclonal antibodies in terms of pharmacokinetics. But there, it might not just be on its antiviral properties, but it's thought that it maybe has some pleiotrophic effects, even on anti-inflammatory effects. You know, there is obviously a large pro-inflammatory component of COVID, so maybe the effect of ivermectin isn't necessarily on the antiviral properties as much as the anti-inflammatory properties. Dr. Sachs goes on to further talk about how the fact that there is incredible publication bias in terms of only we're only seeing very, very, very positive trials. We're not seeing any negative trials. We're not seeing any other trials that would kind of point us to the fact that you know, only the best trials are getting quote-unquote published, that, these, that we're only seeing the positives, we're not seeing any of the negatives. And to his point, too, none of these trials have been published in a single peer-reviewed journal. So this is incredibly, incredibly experimental science, right? And very, very, very low-quality data. And even more, right, so there's a meta-analysis that he brings up in this. For all the meta-analyses done, or the meta-analysis for all the studies so far in with ivermectin. And to his point, he, he even circles it. Um, the all-cause mortality numbers, you only have about 1,000 patients, right? 700, 573 in the experimental group and 510 in the control group, okay? So we're not even talking about large studies. We're talking about small studies. We're talking about very low-quality studies, and none of them have been peer-reviewed. And we're only seeing positive trials published. And they're not even being published in real journals. It's in experimental, non-peer-reviewed. Some are in, quote, you know, could be considered real journals, and I'm not going to put all of these uh, journals uh, down. But none of them are peer-reviewed, okay, in terms of, you know, assessing how poor of quality of evidence these are. And some of these are, frankly, just... I mean, absolutely unbelievable. Uh, mortality risk in one study in Egypt, okay? This study in Egypt had 2,000 people in the experiment, experimental arm and 2,000 people in the control arm. So uh, 200 people, sorry, I said 2,000. 200 people got ivermectin, 200 people got kind of control. And the they saw a 92% relative risk reduction in mortality, right? I mean, that's just unfathomable, right? That is just... That's just bananas to, to, to be actually real. And the meta-analysis showed an 83% relative risk reduction for all-cause mortality, which would dwarf anything that we're doing, anything, uh, steroids, uh, monoclonal antibodies, all of it combined, 83% risk reduction um, in, in treatment. So obviously the effect is not, is not, that, is not, is not that big, right? That is just... I mean, unless we have just for nine nine months completely missed the boat on absolutely everything, and this was the miracle cure all along, which again I would be. I, I hope. I, I, don't get me wrong. I would. I would hope that this is the miracle silver bullet we've been waiting for all along. But this is the case where we have really low quality, small studies, all being published in non peer reviewed, low quality journals from international places. Okay, okay, okay. Sorry, my audio crashed. Um, things are going to sound a little bit different for the rest of the episode. Sorry for this jarring segment, but uh, everything crashed. Okay, so we were just talking about how this data looks absolutely unbelievable, right? 80, 83% reduction in mortality. Um, in some of these studies, you know, even higher rates um, of mortality reduction, uh, you know, 92% in some studies, 83% overall in all the randomized trials in terms of mortality reduction. Okay, so people are 
going on TV now. They're going on the internet now. They're making these claims, just like what happened with hydroxychloroquine. So how do we combat this? I, I think it's important to let these skeptics or these people coming into your office requesting ivermectin. And again, I, if you don't live in a conservative area like I live in, you maybe don't have anybody coming in and asking for it. You, this is maybe a moot point. Uh, but in terms of having a, a reasonable discussion about it, here are the countries in this meta-analysis that have done these trials. Iraq, Bangladesh, Egypt, Iran, Iraq, and then a very, very, very small observational study in the U.S. Again, I think it's important that we put this in perspective, that these total randomized control trials are under 2,000 patients. Meanwhile, people are skeptical and hesitant of this new vaccine, which was, you know, rushed to market, which, again, we talked about that's that's a fair point, that it is rushed to market, but there's incredible heavy skepticism. People aren't going to take it. They're hesitant to take it. Uh, they're not going to take it because they don't trust the process. And yet, in the Pfizer trial, there were 40,000 volunteers, 43,000 volunteers. In the Moderna trial, there were 30,000 volunteers, okay? Compared to the end numbers of this miracle drug that we're talking about, it's it's being absolutely dwarfed. And so we're talking about actual patients getting the vaccine versus actual patients being enrolled in these ivermectin trials. And they're not even in the same ballpark in terms of the quality of evidence. So again, I think it's important to frame it in a reference that either somebody who's a vaccine skeptic but still wants this ivermectin versus somebody who is uh, trusts that, the, that, the, that this research is good in in vaccines. And again, compare the two types of, of evidence about the two different types of trials that we do. Um, I agree uh, that ivermectin needs more data uh, because clearly this is either a miracle cure or the garbage, or this is garbage science. I'm leaning towards garbage science, but I would, again, love to be proven wrong. I think it's important that we have an open dialogue with our patients, not belittling them or demeaning them because of, um, you know, shaming and talking down to patients never works in anything. And it doesn't work in um, skepticism about COVID treatments or um, about vaccine treatments. And so, again, talking with them honestly and openly about here are international, low-quality, small studies that people are um, recommending that we, you know, you know, completely redo our guidelines for versus here is, you know, an evidence of high quality data and, and high efficacy uh, and, a, and a possible preventative cure. And no, I'm not going to prescribe preventative ivermectin when we have this preventative vaccine coming right around the corner for everybody. So um, again, I think it's important to, to, to speak facts and to, to be knowledgeable about these uh, subjects. Um, and just because, uh, again, I've had these questions. Again, I live in a very conservative area. Um, maybe you have had zero conversations or zero questions from patients about ivermectin. Um, is ivermectin going to be a miracle drug? I hope so. Can I trust the low-quality data points so far? No. Is it possible that this is very helpful? Yes, it is possible. Uh, do we need more data? Yes, absolutely. Am I going to prescribe ivermectin right now? No, I'm not. Um, I have access to monoclonal antibodies. I have access to steroids. Um, I have access to uh, you know vitamin D. <laughs> I have access to uh, hospitalizations and, and oxygen. And I think that um, we've already seen a reduction in mortality with these medications from the early initial you know surge in New York and Italy and Spain in you know March. We've already seen a massive reduction in mortality just with these treatments. And I don't think there's any reason at this point in the game to be chasing rainbows, to be chasing a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, 
um, on the off chance that maybe it's helpful. In the meanwhile, you know, this is uh, completely out of left field. Um, I certainly am not going to be prescribing it now that I do have some options. Um, and um, again, if you choose to, you're, you are basically practicing experimental medicine. Uh, is ivermectin pretty benign? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, ivermectin has been used all over the world for antiparasitic effects. But in terms of its effect with COVID, I, I need more data. Um, you've heard me talk on this podcast and many other topics. Don't be a zealot. Don't be the person out there standing on the hill saying, this is the best and the greatest until there's enough evidence to support your cause. Right now, the science is still out. No peer-reviewed studies, no high-quality studies, no no trials uh, in four double in four digits for patients. Um, very, very low quality. And that's what we've got so far. So um, hopefully this was a good topic or a good primer if you weren't up to date on the ivermectin research, if you were kind of out of the loop. If you needed talking points for patients coming in, talking about ivermectin, asking your opinion on it, um, hopefully this gives you um, some background and comfort uh, in the topic. And again, um, sorry we didn't have any primary research. It was kind of a meta-analysis, but it was more of a blog post discussing the breakdown of this uh, meta-analysis and kind of talking points and where we're at with the ivermectin. And again, um, hopefully this is all a moot point in six months from now when we have high volume of vaccine distribution and we can get back to normal life and normal practice. Um, I want to take a small little piece at the end of this visit today to uh, ask you, listeners, uh, for your feedback. Many of you are in private practice. Many of you are in the United States. Um, we just had massive coding and billing changes uh, starting today for most of us. Uh, uh, I had my first day at clinic today with the new coding and billing guideline changes. We talked about this on a private episode of the podcast. Uh, I, I've never billed more 99214s and 99215s before in a single day um, just with the changes today. Uh, I think that it's overall going to be a very net positive for primary care. I spent less time documenting today than I normally do um, and actually upcoded more than I normally would based on the new guidelines. Um, I, I was very happy with the changes. I made some um, voice to text uh, templates already. Uh, I, I've kind of I'm working on my efficiencies. Um, uh, I'll pass anything along that I, that I know of. But again, uh, look back at that episode if you're from the United States, if you're in private practice and you um, need more uh, discussion about the coding and billing changes. I think it's great um, if there's uh, enough people that want us to kind of dig deeper into the changes. Um, I, I'm super happy to, to do that. Um, I've got a couple of things planned here um, um, in the next couple of months. Hopefully things go through. Uh, some, we have some listeners who sent me articles to review. I'm still uh, got that on my docket. I really uh, have a couple of guests host uh, that I that I want to get. Um, I think I'm going to wait until after I get my second dose of my vaccine and I get uh, um, get that sweet, sweet immunity before I do that. Um, and uh, I'm going to be spending a week uh, working as a hospitalist, so I'm going to be on service there. I don't know if I'll get to a podcast or not during that week. Um, but uh, again, I uh, appreciate your feedback. Let me know if that's something that you want us to retouch on or any other topics you want us to hit up. And again, uh, that's primarycarepod at gmail.com. I didn't even talk about that in the intro. Oh, man, I was so excited to tell you about uh, a bird physiology that I completely missed it. Um, but again, uh, you don't need to stay up all night to stay up to date. Hopefully this week was helpful. Thanks for letting me rant a little bit longer than normal. And uh, see you next week. Uh, thanks for listening. God bless.